Hi, everybody. I'm Sunny, and this is We Gotta Talk, a live weekly digital talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. Real talk, big topics. Now, let's dig in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to We Gotta Talk. I am Sunny, and I'm so glad you're here today. You know, we've been taking a little departure from typical topics lately. I have just developed. It's a very recent addiction <laughs> to, to royal gossip. Listen, it's a new thing for an American. This is like not an institution I gave any thought to. Prior to Prince Harry coming out with Spare, his new memoir, and pretty much lighting the world on fire. I wonder if you guys are in the same position here. I'm assuming most listeners are in America. Um, What we're going to do in this episode is just go through the book. It's not overly formal. I'm not going to break it up into pre-measured chapters. I'm just kind of listening to it and popping on over every week and doing a little bit of a recap. Curious to see if you guys are picking up on some of the same thoughts and themes that I am. But just consider this a little bit of an audio review of that memoir and, um, you know, my thoughts on it. Um, So I'm really glad you're here. It's interesting. I did an Instagram poll and it was like a pretty even 50-50 split on people who wanted to hear more about this and people who were like, nope, I'm good. Um, But I just think uh, as with all and well, most stories, there is so much more to the headline. And chances are you have seen a ton of coverage about Spare. And what I want to do in these episodes is sort of look at the man behind it, an armchair psychologist review, even though I'm not a psychologist. (laughs) But um, you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's the kind of stuff that I would talk about with, with, I am talking about with friends and the interpretation of some of the things he's saying, um, you know, the gossip of it all. I feel like he is dishing out some very telling anecdotes about his family that reveal like not only basic facts about things that happen, but also reveal people's like true personalities, at least from his perspective, which is interesting. I should lead this off by saying that, you know, I came in hot a couple of weeks ago. Maybe it was maybe it was a month ago at this point when I did an episode about Harry and Meghan, the documentary on Netflix, and said, you know, I've sort of been a recent convert over to them and understanding them more, um, which is really what kicked off this new interest on my on my part. I'm a sucker for a good media marketing campaign, I guess. Um, But I want to just sort of lay the groundwork for where I stand right now. Um, I don't think we need to like, like one brother and not the other, like one, you know, wife and not the other wife. This is very much not about picking sides or choosing one person to believe over the other. Um, But, you know, it is an opportunity to get to know at least half of these um, Fab Four a little bit better, right? They've opened the door a crack. Actually, they've opened it much wider than a crack. They've pretty much blown the door off the building at this point. (laughs) They're showing us everything or almost everything about their lives. And um, but just want to say that off the bat, because I I posted something a while back and it's interesting that, um, you know, sort of in support of of Megan being offended, allegedly, 
when Prince William allegedly pointed a finger in her face, allegedly, allegedly, and it really brought out some strong comments. So, you know, um, just want to put it out there that this isn't intended to be a fan club of either of the couples or, you know, any individual out of that group of four or six, I guess, if you're counting King Charles and Camilla, but rather sort of an interpretation of really what I think is the most interesting theme of all, the family dynamics of it all. You don't have to be a royal to understand that family drama is real. Like, I don't care if you are, you know, growing up just a normie in America, you know, like me from the suburbs of Pittsburgh, <laughs> or you're the highest of the highly titled people in royal society in Britain. We all have our shit. And... Ultimately, that is what is the most fascinating thing about this media blitz that Harry and Meghan are on. This is the first time that we have been given the opportunity to see royalty as humans. For for for, for centuries, they were said to be, and, and commoners were led to believe these people were divine in some way. They had the divine right to rule and that they had... Um, innate characteristics and abilities beyond what the mere commoner had. And it's just, obviously, we know that's a bunch of BS. And I'm sure they thought the same or assumed the same even back then when they were being fed that that propaganda. But this is the first time that we've had a candid look at an institution that's held so much power for so long. Um, and what really, really draws me to it as well is the stark contrast that we can continue to see between our two cultures. It's amazing to have technically been born, sort of air quotes, from the British um, from the British colonies, right? You know, having earned our freedom, we technically still, you know, we, we kind of started with them. It's so interesting to see how the American Revolution not only revolutionized the way, of course, that we exist and govern as an entity and a body, you know, politically speaking and sociopolitically speaking, but also how the minds of Americans, as we are raised to believe in the concept of, um, you know, like free, not that, not that the British you know, society isn't, people aren't free, but you know, how we are self-governing and how we've never looked outside to a single person for validation for our existence. We have been revolutionary from the start. What I'm saying is <laughs> we've always had it. You know what I mean? Like, it just makes me weirdly proud to be an American as I read this stuff. It's such a corny, it's really corny to say. And I like, as I'm saying it, I'm embarrassed almost. But what, what this has really thrown into stark relief for me is just the difference still to this day, the cultural difference between our societies and how proud I am to be on this side of the pond. Is that weird? I actually had occasion to talk about this, too, with some with some friends recently. And we'll get to the book in a second. But I think this is all sort of relevant thematically speaking. Um, you know, I, I was talking with a, with a friend about my family having come here from Italy and having been so proud to be American and raise their children in America. So proud that they stopped speaking their mother tongue to their own children. Right. It wasn't. It wasn't considered a necessary skill or something that was even desirable to teach your children, for in our case, Italian. Because you're American now. You're in a you're in a society and in a world where you earn your living and and where you were born or to whom you were born bears no impact 
on the potential you have as an individual. It was so strong in them, this desire to, to the American dream from the beginning, to work for a living, to make something of themselves, to be free from these feudal ties or these societal ties and sort of hierarchies that had governed so many, every other country in, in centuries, in millennia past. It's just, wow, how cool is it that, um, how cool is it? I don't care how, how cool is it to be an American? Oh my God, I'm such a dork, but I don't care. Um, listen, this country is taking a, a justifiable beating, I guess, these days in terms of some of the crazier things that have happened here. And I think we have some recent scars on our, you know, collective conscience to sort of grapple with. And I do think that politically speaking, we're we're polarized in ways that we haven't been, at least in recent decades. But damn it, I am just so much, I'm just so proud to be an American. Oh my God, I'm such an idiot. Anyway, that's just, I had to lead off with that because, um, and I know we're talking about British royalty here, but there are themes that run through Spare and that have run through all of the interviews they've done that have just really brought to the surface how very differently, um, how very differently these they sort of view themselves and their role in the world versus, versus us. Oh gosh. Okay, I feel like this is going to lead to a lot of like really un unnecessarily rude comments toward me. So I'm just going to stop. <laughs> and I'm proud to be an American. Okay, I'm embarrassed. Anyway, let's start off with Spare, the intro. I mentioned this as I was listening to it. I'm walking around the backyard with the dog, have my audiobook turned on. Within the first three minutes, I was in not like sobbing tears, but in tears. Um, it leads off with, um, a scene as Harry returns back to Britain after Mexit had sort of started, like the ball had started rolling and Harry is um, set to meet on the grounds of, I can't, I can't remember, you know, this is not a true journalist at work here. I did not write down the location of where this meeting was, but he was meeting with, with um, now King Charles and Prince William at the time. I believe it was after, after the, their grandfather's funeral. So prior to the queen dying, but after her husband dying. And Harry describes this scene, seeing his father and his brother walk in together, even visually picking up on the cues that they were allied in their belief and their sort of opposition to him. And he's kind of taken aback at the energy and how they keep repeating the fact that they don't understand. No, Harold, we don't understand why you left. And Harry says, if they didn't know why I left, maybe they didn't know me at all. And I think this was a really apt way to begin this book because if there's one thing that I've noticed, and I'm 30-some chapters in right now, so it's been maybe a, th I don't know, about a third of the book, but there's one underlying theme that we come back to with Harry time and time again. It is this feeling of uh, the unloved one. I, I mean, for lack of a better term, it's, it's, it's middle child syndrome, even though he's not the middle child. It is spare syndrome. I mean, duh, I guess I should just look at the title for for what it is I'm trying to describe just this general feeling and and he repeats this so often times where he looks at how his brother interacts with people or how he's, his brother is treated by other people and he's just looked at as an accessory as a plan b as a what we worry about only if plan a doesn't work out so it, there's this very melancholy sort of undertone to it and it really kicks off with that and um in the intro to he he um of course, speaks about his mom. And I think I just, you know, I sort of lost 
a little, I lost it there for a second. Um, I was, I don't even remember how old I was, 1997, I think, when Princess Di, Diana died, and I was 16. I mean, young enough to under, or old enough to understand the gravity of what had happened, but now looking at it through like a parent's eyes, it's, it's truly, truly just continues to be very sad to see how this impacted him it just reverberates through his life um in chapter two he's describing balmoral uh, balmoral i i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right i think that's how you say it castle and how it had built been built over centuries and he references another prince harry of days past and um you know, walking through these these grounds, which hold so much of his family and his country's history. He says, within a few, I, I was walking within a few generations of another Prince Harry who got himself exiled and then came back and annihilated everything and everyone in sight. My distant kin, my kindred spirit, some would claim. If nothing else, my namesake. This Again, we go back. I don't know if this is the ghostwriter at work or Harry himself, but we go back to that essential feeling that Harry always has felt like the renegade. And you get the impression as the book goes on that maybe he he's not necessarily comfortable with that. It was maybe it was a something sort of foisted upon him, the party prince, the one who breaks all the rules, the one who doesn't fit into the family. Um it's just so interesting and and especially when he references, you know, another prince Harry who got himself exiled and then came back and annihilated everything and everyone in sight. And you wonder if there's a part of Prince Harry now that has that same sort of subconscious desire. Cuz I don't think we can say that he's not doing that in some sort of way, maybe annihilating with his words. He's certainly I would imagine leaving a lot of hurt feelings in his wake. And it's t- you, you begin to get the feeling that he's saying something like, okay, if you guys are telling me I'm the one who screws everything up and I'm the one who's only needed, you know, when needed and kind of put me in the corner until then. Really? You want to play that game? Then I'll come back and I'll, I'll play my game with you too. I'll show you for who you are. And that that's what you feel in this book. I'm, I'm starting out, uh, starting to realize as I started out listening to this book that, um, this is a man, and I've said this before, who who seems to me to be leading with his hurt. And for better or for worse, we are gobbling it up right now, right? I mean, they're they're monetiz- he's monetizing his trauma in some ways. And everybody's entitled to do that. Everybody's entitled to share their story. Um, but what you can't break away from in this book and in every interview he does, even down to the expressions on his face, you cannot disengage with the feeling that this is being led by a deep, deep sense of sadness and of hurt. And there is some reconciliation that has just not happened with his family that he is yearning for. And so much so that he's willing to get on a world stage and talk about his family. I actually think it's, it's sad. I, 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 uh, anyway, I I said this before, I'm going to say it again, and then we'll move on to the other chapters. But I like Harry. I like his vulnerability. He is, as I joked before on Instagram, he is more American (laughs) That a lot of Americans, I know, you know, that kind of leave it out on the table, fight for what you believe in. Here it is. Deal with it for better or for worse. Um, that's appealing to me about an individual, someone who is very forthcoming with their with their feelings and their struggles and blah, 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 but chafes so directly against how he was raised and the people that are in his family. And and I wonder, you can, I especially as this book goes on, if there remains any chance of reconciliation. It is like bomb after bomb after bomb after bomb. 
It's just, it's wild. Anyway, okay. He even calls out the size of the rooms in the castle, his brothers versus his. When he introduced the uh, introduces the concept of heir versus spare, because I, I think he's assuming that some maybe American readers or readers in other parts of the world don't understand the concept. I think most of us do. He says, I was the shadow, the support, the plan B. I was summoned to offer support, a body part, perhaps. And then he sort of talks about his existence as relative to his brother, always in relation to his brother, which is a note that I wrote. Um, and this this continues through the book, too, even as they get a school age and they end up on the same campus. Um, he's really, really impacted and hurt by the fact that William, Willie, as he calls him, uh, wants nothing to do with him at Eton and that... Um, on campus, there, you know, William William is on the top row, or the, I'm sorry, the top level, top floor of the dormitory. And Harry says, I was assigned to the same house, but I was on the ground floor. And at least, you know, at least he had that space from me because I know he hated being in the same building as me. It's it's actually kind of heartbreaking. Um, he, he walks through some really interesting sort of anecdotes about the stuffiness of having to take part in royal dinners and events. Um, I should mention, too, and I didn't say this off the top, that the intro is obviously sort of rooted in the present day. And then the book goes back. It goes back to right before, um, to, you know, to years before Princess Diana's death and his childhood and things like that. So, you know, it's kind of like a movie. You open with the present. You kind of kick back to the past. So the first few chapters, the first giant chunk of the book is sort of dedicated to his childhood. It talks about the stuffiness of having to take part in some royal dinners and events. And it's clear that um, even from the beginning, you know, he talks about them using this ugly formal, you know, these plates and flatware and this horrible tasting food and quail eggs. And ugh. he's sort of always like, oh, this is kind of, you know, not my not my style. You get that vibe from very early on in the book. Uh, he also talks about what he inherited from his mother, her blue eyes, her love of people, a hatred of smugness. Hold on to that. We'll come back to it. And of anything posh. Um so this is the beginning of where Harry starts to draw some real parallels between himself and his mother. And if you listen to current interviews, he is often referencing her. My mom, I feel like my mom was my mom was present when I made this decision or she would have loved Megan or I feel like she would have made the same decision in the circumstance. Um, I would love to talk to a psychologist and see if this is some sort of coping or survival mechanism or or not to say that that can't be the truth, that they can't be startlingly similar. I mean, they are, after all, parent and child. But you really see him draw so many parallels between his personality and his mother's personality. And then Prince William and King Charles' personality. It's so interesting, isn't it? And if you're in a family of four, I feel like you kind of know this vibe already. Again, the family dynamics of it all. They're just like us. Royals, they're just like us. There's always one child who feels more like one parent and the other who feels like more like the other. Like I've been told from day one, oh, you look like your dad. You act like your dad. You're more of an abada than a blah, blah, blah. You know, it's so, it's crazy to think that even the royals aren't immune to this, is that we're all so desperately searching for a feeling of belonging and a feeling of someone who innately understands us that they even do they even do this at that level it's wild he talks about how he hates the dark and that's like sort of a theme that runs through the book um chapter 10 I, i'm wondering if oh okay so i think we are getting to the point now where we've covered uh, i probably didn't write any notes here because it was really intense he talks in in very specific detail about being woke in the night of his mother's death and his father comes into his room and he says, my darling boy, 
which was his nickname that apparently he has used his whole life. My darling boy, there's been an accident. And Harry runs through, oh, it's just heartbreaking. Um, this, this, this feeling that he, or this question, these questions that he had, like, okay, but she's okay, right? And no, she's not. Um, it was something that happened. Well, they'll fix her head, right? Unfortunately, no, they tried and they can't. It's just, he, he recounts down to, you know, the look and the feel of the sheets in the bed that he was sleeping on or sleeping in um, with such really, really rich sensory detail about what that was like. And you just cannot help but break for this boy. Um, it's just so, so sad. Um, yeah, he, he's. this is the point in the book, too, where he starts to talk about his dad's image being damaged and how parenthood, especially single parenthood, wasn't for him. Um, so he'll come back to this topic and other parts of the book but he mentions on more than one occasion about his dad's lack of ability to really um to emote guys listen i cannot i do a lot of things wrong as a parent but i feel that showing emotion to our children which is something that i strive to do is probably one of the most important things we can do to raise solid, well, sort of self-connected, you know, self-aware individuals. And hearing how many times Prince Harry comes back to this theme of never getting a hug from his grand, I, I don't know, there's so many, there's so many moments, no hugs, no kissing, no blah, 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 that my heart literally breaks. I would rather take a parent who is you know, who maybe you hear emotional moments in the household and things get a little loud or wild once in a while than a family or a situation like this where everything is bottled up inside. It's truly, truly heartbreaking. And you can hear Harry really struggle with how he was raised beyond his father's death. And he really paints his mom as the one, of course, who was emotional and tactile and, um, you know, expressive and his father in this totally opposite cast in this totally opposite role whether fair or not i should put a huge asterisk on this this is just his interpretation um you know just being um not cold but um just sort of unable to emote and it's really quite sad he said he had trouble communicating trouble listening um but this was a very poignant moment he's trying to understand and you hear him talk through this is in chapter 15 um trying to understand who his dad is, right? Because this is the only surviving parent he has now. And there's a moment where he goes back and talks about his own father's childhood and the fact that he was sent away to boarding school. He was bullied. He was a quite sensitive boy who didn't fit in with the rough and tumble boys at the boarding school that he was at and just really suffered a lot through through bullying and ostracization. And he talks about his dad's teddy bear. And I was like, what? Prince or not Prince, I guess King Charles is a teddy bear from childhood. It's just wild. I mean, the, just like, I, it's just the themes. How many ways can we damage our children should be, the, should be the title of this book because what this explores in such great detail, whether he intends to do this or not, is uh, he just paints the royals as these tragically human, which they are characters, which we've never been able to see before. Can you imagine if someone had told you two years ago, King Charles has a teddy bear that he carries around and he often, you know, struggles with the impact of bullying he experienced as a child. You'd be like, what? Um, it's just like, this is Harry's big secret. He's just taking a big brushstroke and just painting everyone as humans. He's like, listen, I'm revealing. It's like the invisibility cloak. Like everything is like the, 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 
the royals that we were taught to see and interpret these stoic, poised, polished, professional, it's just like they're gone now. And in their place, these very, very imperfect, uh, these emotionally complicated individuals whose behaviors really did impact those around them in a really difficult and, and in a really difficult way. And like that's 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 the trick, the magic trick he pulls off here is through these anecdotes is just showing how tragically human they, they are and saying, listen, this is kind of why I am how I am. Oh, it's so it, like the family gossip of it all. I can't. He also um, this is the part of the book where they start to talk about Camilla coming into the picture and Harry and William being just very aware of the fact that she was the third wheel on the marriage, the third person in the marriage. And he talks all about um, the concept of people comparing Camilla and Diana. And he says nobody wanted that. He Nobody wanted people to compare, compare Camilla and Diana, least of all Camilla. Yeah, he's like, you know, of course, alluding to the fact that he, she could never stack up to Diana. And to be honest, from a sort of PR or like, Hollywoodish, for lack of a better term standpoint, no one could. I mean, Diana was magic. She was a supernova. In fact, in the intro, now I'm recalling, that's the part that made me cry. He compares her to Arendelle, which is like a, a Viking maybe word for morning star. And and there's this moment where he looks up at the sky and he sees this star and he's reminded of his mother and she was the star that lit everything. I mean, it's very, anyway, that's that's what I'm remembering. That's the point I cried in the intro. And, and as you get through the book and you see Harry and William struggle to accept Camilla as the new woman, in the dynamic of that relationship, he's like, it's hard. I mean, let's be honest. Who can ever compare to Princess Diana? They made a beanie baby after her, okay? <laughs> what an American way to interpret the whole situation. That was our, like, that was our, like, great exposure to the concept of royalty. It was that we got to buy purple, purple beanie, Princess Diana beanie babies. I mean, come on. We're just, it's just, it's crazy. Um, okay, so this is the part, too, where... Harry starts to, the part of the book, I should say, where Harry starts to, as a child, become aware of the concept of the press and the role in their lives. And he says, I was a glove puppet to be manipulated and mocked for fun. Um, I have a little bit of a typo here, but I think it says something, what made, what their, their fun made my already difficult days more difficult you know, did they know they were torturing a child? He said the press found joy in bringing him down, down to even searching for moments of um, sort of emotion to capture between um, the then Prince Charles and his sons as they were walking. He specifically talks about this one time going into public after his after his mother's death, where he grabs for his father's hand and the press just, bam, snaps a picture and he feels so violated. And he said, I can't believe that I didn't think about it, that I, I can't believe I gave them what they wanted, that moment of vulnerability, that moment of emotion. And you hear this sort of anger that nothing could be kept private. I mean, guys, to say that he has a sense of vitriol toward the press is the biggest understatement of the century. F rightly or not, because it's ironic that the press is his friend now that he's promoting this, he cast them as the biggest demon in all of everything. And it's 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 easy to understand why. I don't know that I would be able to extricate, um, you know, the group that was responsible for my mother's death from any, you know, sense of, positivity or I don't know that I would be able to like see any positivity in that group ever is what I'm trying to say but the what comes through and this is why it's actually really cool to listen to the audiobook versus versus read it is he hates 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 
hates the press. He calls one reporter in the uh, chapters coming up something like a pustule on the something on the behind or a pustule on the something of of journalism. I mean, he detests. um, He really just deeply detests them. It's just, yeah, I mean, again, another sort of recurring theme in the book. Um, He also talks about the origin in this part of the book, the origin of him being dubbed the naughty one. Um, I think this is really interesting. And this is a this is a real argument for not calling our kids anything. Let me let me find a way to better better explain this. This is a real argument for not casting our kids into character roles. I think so often as parents, and in this case, Prince Harry is talking about being cast in these roles by the press, but but just bear with me for a second. Um, when someone tells you, oh, you're the naughty one, you're the crazy one, she's my emotional one, he's my serious one, even these offhanded comments can have such a profound impact on the way that our kids develop their sense of self that it is remarkable. It's actually scary. And I know that all of us have experienced being called the fill in the blank one growing up. You know, I was the quiet one growing up or the shy one or the and and it took me really decades of my existence to understand that I I was maybe sort of leaning into things and, you know, titles and descriptors that people gave me because it was easier to do that than to just go and try to prove them wrong and be like, no, actually, I have a few things, quite a few things to say. It's just the blah, blah. so wow, just, you know, parental lessons from the royals he says to my memory has been spotty since mommy's death and he liked it that way he considers it a coping mechanism throughout this book you sort of hear him describing um really in really great detail rich detail um the scenes like the physical environments where things were happening he talks about balmoral castle he talks about um the, the grounds where you know the palace was he talks about like i said um down to the detail of the bedroom and the and the and the murky water that comes out of the tap at Balmoral Castle and all of these it's a really rich interesting sort of sensory experience to hear him describe this but he talks about how he's always been able to remember places and how things looked but he can't like he has a harder time with remembering exact words of how things were said which made me pause and laugh because I'm like Oh my gosh, you can't say that, Harry. You're writing a whole book about what people said to you. Don't say you can't remember what people say. Now they're going to be like, none of this is true. Because even you said you can't remember well what people say. Uh, um, but yeah, he considers it, considers it a sort of coping mechanism. I'm going to round out shortly here because I'm up to, let me just pop open my audio. No, what's it called? Audible. I'm currently on chapter 38, um, which is... It says I have 12 hours of listening time left. My God, how many episodes are we going to go through here? Um, But I'm just going to wrap up. Even though the last official note I have was taken on chapter 24, consider it a proof of how engaging this book is, Um, goes back to this unspoken rule about no physical contact between family members. Um, So this is really interesting as well, because as we all know, headlines have been coming out recently about the differences between Megan and Kate and how when they met one of the first times they've met or they met, Megan was in ripped jeans and barefoot in the house and Kate shows up in something relatively formal and Megan goes in for the hug, just, you know, like the American she is and like, this is how we greet people. And she says, uh, this is what she said in the documentary. She felt a sense of formality and the realization that that formality went beyond just outer appearances, but it also existed in them. The sense of uh, decorum, um, reservedness, and, um, you know, it's just, 
completely different. Not only, I, I'm not saying that this is how British people are, obviously, because I have no idea and not the ability to make any sweeping generalizations about an entire population. But <laughs> what he does talk about is how this in the royal family is just a common theme, the lack of physical contact between family members. He actually recounts this really interesting um, episode. And I, I'm not sure if this was a well-photographed moment because this would have been in my childhood and I was not I was not scoping out the mirror or the Daily Mail in the 80s and 90s. But he says, there is a well-remembered moment where Princess Diana went in for a hug with the Queen and the Queen sort of slinked away at the last minute and it made for a very awkward moment and photo op and opportunity. And um, I can't help but think like this is just really impact who he is. This is a man who is desperate for for contact not physical contact but for connection i should say so desperate for it that he is willing to go on a world stage and tell what a lot of people would consider to be pretty deep family secrets in order to get a reaction from his parents is this not the quintessential acting out i, I don't know um i guess and i'll i'll, I'll end on this note and we'll come back for another recap because there's just so so much to get into um as I said in the beginning, there are a few underlying themes that that continue throughout the book. It's the heir versus spare, of course, this um, sense of, of comparison and competition with his brother. There is um, this feeling of being, you know, cast as the naughty one. And there's also this, this desperation he seems to have for connection that he is clearly lacking um, in his family. And that he obviously saw his mother as the point person in his life and his relationships with, you know, in all of his relationships, the only person really that he could fully express all of his, his emotional spectrum. And when she's taken away from him, how, how deeply hurt he continues to be every time he's rejected by another person. It's really fascinating. My God, I could talk about this forever. Do we think this is why he ended up marrying an older woman? Is there a Freudian little twist to that? There's some headlines that came out recently that said Harry always loved an older woman. Um, really interesting and sort of crazy thought there. Um, and, and, and really plays into what he's doing now. This is a man still so desperate to reach, emotionally reach those close to him that he's willing to write a book about it, to go on TV about it, to make a documentary about it. I mean, I don't care how compelling of a person Megan is, and she really is in her own right. The one thing that I have noticed while consuming content based on Harry and Meghan throughout is that the, the, the leading narrative here is Harry and his hurt and, you know, how that has led him through his life to today. Um, Harry needs a bear. Harry needs a teddy bear like his dad. He needs an emotional support bear. I'm not saying that in, in jest. I think you guys know me by now. I mean, I'm a person who talks about my therapy, my hypnotherapy. I mean, all of the things um, on a very public platform. Um, I am proud of seeing an individual come so far in their emotional journey. I think the question that remains to be answered is, is this the proper way to heal? And um, I don't know. Stay tuned. We'll come back for the rest of the recap on Spare whenever I get a chance to listen. Probably when I'm chasing this dog around the yard and he's he's 
nipping and jumping and yapping at me at any at any given point it's a really good listen guys check it out i'll be back with another recap episode but please do dm me let me know like what specifically you want to talk about in regards to this book or in in regards to harry are you picking up on the same themes are you seeing the same wounded boy Uh, what am i missing tell me more thank you so much for listening to this episode of we gotta talk don't forget to rate review and subscribe and follow along on instagram at sunny abata s-o-n-n-i A-B-A-T-T-A. All of the latest blog posts are at wegotatalk.com slash blog. <laughs>